In this podcast, Pamela Barty, a Forbes 30 under 30 entrepreneur and developer of a $100 million real estate empire, will share her inspiring underdog comeback story. And along with those of her guests, she'll share how you too, as an underdog, can rise up and succeed against all odds. Here's your host, Pamela Barty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Underdog. Today, I have an incredibly amazing person here with me today. I have the iconic Joe Foster with me, the founder of Reebok, and it is such, such an honor to have you here, Joe. Welcome. It's an absolute pleasure, and being in Boston makes it even more of a pleasure. So it's (laughs) fantastic. Thank you. It's such an honor to have you here today. I, like I mentioned before the interview, I've been studying you, the story of Reebok, how you started, your grandfather, all this amazingness. And I just can't wait to get into it with you. So I'm excited. (laughs) So my first question and my opening question is, what inspired you on your journey to where you are today? What inspired me? I think it was the need to, uh, the need to do something. J.W. Foster my grandfather started that. He was a genius. He really was. And I'm sure we'll touch on him a bit later. But my father and uncle didn't seem to inherit that DNA, didn't seem to inherit the what you do with the business, how you grow, the excitement. And uh, myself and my brother, Jeff, unfortunately, Jeff isn't with us these days, but uh, we were looking at a failing business. Father said, look, when I'm gone and your uncle's gone, this business will be yours. And uh, we said, well, look, Dad, we really don't want you to go. You know, that's not the plan. This business will be gone long before you because it needs attention. It needs planning. But they didn't get on. My father and my uncle just didn't get on. And that really is the base. If they don't get on, they don't speak, they don't work together, you can't take a company anywhere. So the inspiration was um, with Jeff, look, you know, we, we need to do something about this. Uh, this is not going to be a future. So we need to make our own future. And so we left the family business and we set up our own little company, Mercury Sports Footwear. I remember reading that. I was like, what? <laughs> so different. <laughs> Mercury Sports. Mm. Oh, my gosh. Amazing. 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 And from there, I had read that your accountant had told you to register the name so nobody could steal it. That's right. We were quite young, quite naive. We had no idea that you did such things. But he said, oh, you better register your name because if you don't, and somebody else starts making, because they like the look of these Mercury shoes, somebody else will start making Mercury shoes. And then you, you've got problems. You have to prove that you own it and that you used it and all that. So he said, go and register it. And, of course, you've read the story. I tried to register the name. Uh, only to find out it's pre-registered. Somebody else had got it. And that was British Shoe Corporation. They're a big company, or were a big company in those days. And uh, they offered it to us for £1,000, which is, you know, today £1,000 is not much money. But, you know, if somebody says to you $100,000 and you've just done a startup, you'd be saying, oh, we didn't have that money. We set a whole factory up for £250. £1,000, impossible. And of course, we were so small, the bank wouldn't listen to us if we wanted to borrow that sort of money. So I had to go see a patent agent. And it's in Manchester. Manchester is quite a big city in the north of England, near to where we had our factory. And uh, 
And the man said, well, if you can't buy it, then you have to think of a new name. And he said, but don't bring me one. Bring me at least 10. And he pointed through his window. It was a nice day in May. And he pointed through his window to Kodak. There was a Kodak sign. And I said, well, what's with that? And he said, it's made up. They make that name. It's their own name. They invented it. So nobody can have that name. So if you can make a name, invent a name, fine. Well, I go back and we sit down with Jeff and our wives around the table. And we're thinking, names. And some silly names do come out. And you can imagine it. <laughs> it's, <laughs> extremely, it's extremely difficult to get really serious when you're doing it. But let me take you back to 1943. 1943, I'm only eight years old. And uh, it was during the war. A bit like today and COVID. Nobody could go anywhere. So there was a lot of events happening locally. And I won a race. I won, I think it was a 60-yard race at eight years old. I had an advantage. I had spike shoes. Nobody else had spike shoes on. <laughs> J.W. Foster's made spike shoes and I had spike shoes on. So maybe that was a bit of an advantage to me, or maybe a big advantage. But I won the race anyway. And I went up to collect my, uh, my prize. And what do I get? A dictionary. And I'm saying, a dictionary? Where's the football? I'm only a kid. What can I do with the dictionary? And above all else, it was an American dictionary. And a lot of the spellings, it was Webster's, a lot of the spellings in the American dictionary are different from the English. You know, you spell colour with the, with, without the U, when you spell colour with the U, and other such things. So, uh, okay, I know fast forward, and we're sitting down, we're thinking names. And I see my dictionary, it's sat there. And I open it because I like the letter R. I thought, ah, oh, it's a nice, strong beginning to any word. So turn into R, and it's not long leafing through that I get to R, double E, B or K. Reebok, what's that? Small South African gazelle. Gazelle? Fabulous. That sounds great. Top of the list. Reebok, top of the list. Okay, we had this list. I went back to the agent and said, look, I know you asked for 10, <laughs> but we want that one. Reebok. We've got to be in love with this. It's got to be our passion. You know, we're, we're here for the long haul and we really, we really want that name. He said, okay, it took about a week to go through whatever they go through with the registrar. And he came back and he said, well, you're very lucky because it's the only one there is absolutely no problem with. You can have that. But uh, the registrar had made one caveat. That is that if somebody came to them and they were making shoes out of Reebok skin, they couldn't stop them. But, you know, um, Jeff and I, we looked at each other and said, nah, that's not going to happen. <laughs> so we registered Reebok. Had we, I mean, my dictionary is American dictionary, and had I been looking at an Oxford English dictionary, it would have been R-H-E-B-O-K. And sometimes R-H-E-B-O-C-K. Nothing like the Reebok, just R-W-B-O-K. Two syllables, brilliant. So that, that's how we changed our name to, to Reebok. But I love that it's the gazelle. I love mm. that. I, it's absolutely perfect. And that basically it was 15. It came to you 15 years prior through that dictionary. Yes. I don't know. I call that destiny, Joe. I don't, I don't know. It's pretty incredible. <laughs> well, well, it is. I mean, these, these are the sort of things, good fortune, luck, whatever it is. And, and, and I think you have to look at your luck. And uh, I was speaking to um, Dan Pink. He's, uh, you probably read his books. He said, we, we all have some luck. He said, just think how lucky I am. That was himself. He said, I was born in America. 
and I was born in the 20th century. How lucky is that? When you think about that, yeah, that's pretty lucky. You know, and I was born in, in England, in the UK, and that's pretty lucky as well. So we started off being lucky by being born in the right place at a good time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, your luck and whatever it is, I was obviously destined to win that dictionary <laughs> when I was eight. And my name was in there all that time before. That's incredible. And now I have to ask you, what did you want to be when you grew up? had the spiked shoes with you you won that race what was your dream as a kid i think in in those days when when you're if you're very small you want to be a train driver then as you get a bit older you, you want to be a pilot you want to fly the plane i spent my national service two years of national service in the raf and uh, towards the end they ask you if you'd like to stay because you do two years which are compulsory it's national service You've got to way back then. <laughs> it doesn't happen today, but way back then we had to do that. And they did say, look, if you want to stay on, you can do. We can promise that you'll do this. And if you want to go to flying school, we, we can train you. So maybe I could fly a jet. Maybe I could fly a fighter jet, something like that. And when you're young, you're full of that enthusiasm. You know, It's like, wow, that'd be great. But uh, I think maybe sense prevailed. And I... I left the area and came home to be a shoemaker. School, though, school, I, I was educated at school as an engineer. And that was quite interesting because, again, we had, in, in the town that we're in, we, we had an aerospace industry. And it is, I think it's still there, but uh, there was a chance to go into that. But no, I think, uh, you know, you're not too interested when you're only 17, 18. You're more interested in what's going on in life. I'm so fun going to the local dances and meeting up with the girls and whatever. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's what you do when you're young. You know, you're not seriously thinking, I must, some people do. We've met one or two people who uh, are 21 and doing incredible things, whereas at 21, but we were still, Jack and I were still doing national service at that point when, well, I'd just finished. And uh, so it was getting back into life again, you know? So really, I guess I didn't have many big ambitions at that point i think if we hadn't had a family business i would have probably gone into something my father wanted me to go into accountancy to be an accountant and i spent a few days just in an accountant's office and i thought i can't just ticking numbers and no no i i gotta get something a little more active than this (laughs) so so no so i ended up a shoemaker that's incredible that's incredible Joe. it's so interesting to see you know what are the dreams as a kid and how did, how did it sort of you know throughout your life change a little bit that's interesting that your father wanted you to be an accountant it was kind of like the same thing in my world you know my parents were like Pam get a nine to five do something normal I was like no I can't do that that's not fun that's not fun oh man what an incredible story. And so when you and your brother basically came together in 1958 and decided that you were going to start this business, even though you had come from a family of shoemakers, right? Your grandfather in 1895, J.W. Foster and Sons, he created the spiked shoes. He, he was an influencer of marketing of all sorts, which is so cool. So I'm sure you had learned quite a bit from, from him, but who was who would you say was your biggest influence or could be one or a couple of them that influenced this decision? I think necessity. You know, necessity is a, is a mother of invention. And of course, it's also, it also drives you to make decisions. And the necessity was, well, okay, we, I'm 
23 and Jeff is 25 and we're thinking about what are we going to do? This, this company is failing. So the necessity of we have to do something. And then, you know, there's the enthusiasm that we, we actually went to night school before we left. We went to college to, uh, in the evenings to learn about shoemaking because all we knew was what we picked up on the floor and the workshop floor there in J.W. Foster's. That was a good decision. Not so much that we, we, we did learn quite a lot, of course, but what we did, what happened is we met the industry. We met people. We knew who to talk to. They knew who we should talk to. And so we, we managed to learn how to set up a factory and things like that. So, and that to me was very interesting because people, people are so important to life. And it's, we're going to be friends now for life. This is what happens when you meet people and you talk to them and you discuss things. They help you. And if you can, you help them. So what made it his, the inspiration was, yes, well, granddad did. Jeff and I knew very little about grandfather because grandfather died 18 months, 15 months before I was born. But I was born on his birthday, you know, which like, so that's how I got his name. He was Joseph William. I was born on his birthday, the 18th of May, 15 months after he died. So my grandmother was so insistent that I brought my name with me. I would be insistent too, Joe, the same day, same birthday. Absolutely. So I, I guess it's a bit of fate in that, you know, a bit of sort of, oh, why not? Yes, you know, people think, well, born on his birthday, 15 months after, you know, if you think we don't get into that. But, you know, it is that coincidence. It's, those are the coincidences that uh, happen in life. And you know, whether that's luck, and probably it is a good deal of luck for me to be born because it gives you that little bit of uh, people ask questions. Wow, did it really happen? Yes, that really happened. So, but we didn't know an awful lot about grandfather. It, it took us until we were quite, we were really going nicely. And we decided really with bits and pieces, bits of uh, newspaper cuttings and things like that about uh, Jed, who we first met by grandfather. So uh, we actually employed a young man to just go to the library in Manchester and to dig out everything he could. Now I have a folder which is three inches thick of all the advertising and all the stuff that grandfather did. So we learned an awful lot more about grandfather and his successes. And we actually picked up a letterhead, a letterhead from the 1920s. On that letterhead, and this is written on the letterhead, my grandfather supplied every athlete at the Olympic Games in Antwerp in 1920. So he supplied them with footwear. And you think, but in those days, the Olympics were just track and field. You know, I mean, now the Olympics is massive. It covers a lot of sport. But in those days, the Olympics was track and field, and he supplied the athletes. So, uh, you know, this, is, this was news to us. Plus, also, he was supplying, you know, soccer. Soccer is big in the UK. It was born in the UK. It's where it came from. And uh, he was supplying, if you know any of the teams, all of the premiership teams. He was supplying them. There's 96 teams on this list. The whole of the UK and Scotland, you know, wherever. And uh, so and we wondered when we'd found this, what happened? Why were not J.W. Foster's the biggest sports company in the world when they'd got that? Why, why had they allowed Adidas to come in? Because when Jeff and I left the company, Adidas had come and they were quite big, especially in soccer. And they were too big for us to challenge them at that time. So that's why we concentrated on athletics and on running. Grandfather, he obviously, he was an influencer and he knew what influencing was and he knew who to uh, give his shoes to. He, he actually gave his shoes to, even to journalists. 
and journalists would then write about his shoes. So he didn't have anything like we have today, computers, telephones, you know, the fantastic communications we had. He had to rely upon journalists. So he was a great man. Unfortunately, as I've said before, my father and uncle, maybe they didn't get on together. The other thought is they had gone through two world wars. They went through World War One and World War Two, and you come out at the other end. Do you want to start building a business at that point? Probably not. Probably in the early 50s, and it was probably just a matter, we got through the war. <laughs> let's, let's live a little. And uh, so we were left with that, that thought. You know, grandfather, we, we needed to, out of necessity, build a company. And, and it's when you get going in your company, you know, how it becomes from two people, how it became Reebok. Well, yeah. you read it in the story and the, uh, mm. and the fun and games I had getting my product to America. Yes, my goodness. So your grandfather, I feel like today he would be like this massive Instagram and YouTube sensation because he was already doing it a hundred years ago, which is fantastic, which is fantastic. And I love that he almost trailblazed the way in in a way, right? Like way back when to put this all together and then for you guys to sort of put the pieces together, which is so incredible, so incredible. And what I love in reading your book, Shoemaker, and I know, and I know you discuss this in the book, but I'd love to get into the story of what you just mentioned of how do you, one, start from such humble beginnings in which I believe you and your wife and your brother and his wife were living in the factory in the beginning when you started Reebok initially? Yes, the, uh, the factory that we, we rented, the factory, was an old brewing building. And the, the brewery, at the front of it, it fronted onto a main road in our small town. And the front part of the building was living quarters. There was some nice living areas. We, we had a couple of living rooms and bedrooms, but you know, we didn't need much. We, again, you're young. You know, you're, you're a bit indestructible when you're young, aren't you? It's like, yeah, yeah, tons of energy and so what? You know, what can go wrong? <laughs> and nothing can go wrong. It's finding your way around the problems. And uh, I think that doing national service, two years national service, taking us away from home, making us think for ourselves, because mother's no longer there. Mother's no longer doing your washing or making your meals. So you do start to think for yourself. And yeah, we started and we were living in this building, which, uh, okay, I had to sell a property. I just bought a house and uh, we had it on a mortgage. So there wasn't much equity in that, <laughs> but a bit. And uh, you just put yourself in and start working. In those early days, yes, you're young. I sometimes think now and I look back and I think that must have been tough. And I think again, no, it was fun. We were enjoying it. It was great, but certainly I was. I don't think my wife enjoyed it as much as I did, but she was young as well. So, you know, we we did okay. Incredible. That's incredible. And to see where it grew as a global brand at this point is remarkable. So what was your first experience as an entrepreneur, the like the first couple years of starting and then how you made your way into the United States because I think it's just incredible. And I know there's a lot of entrepreneurs listening who, you know, they're starting their businesses or they're in that initial phase or they're looking to scale their business out that I know are going to be listening intently to the answer to this question on what your recipe was or what your story was. Well, we know we had to change our name. That was our first challenge. Our second challenge came about four years into business and we got a letter. And this letter was from the lawyers of Adidas. And at that point, we had two bars uh, and a T-bar. Two stripes and a T-bar was a, our silhouette. And uh, they considered that that silhouette was uh, infringing the three stripes. 
okay. And we're saying, oh. And for five minutes, we were a bit, oh, what did we do? Then we looked and said, this is from Adidas. Adidas have written to Reebok. <laughs> Adidas <laughs> a challenge, a, a thinking that we, we, we're a challenge. Fantastic. We are a challenge then. You know, we're here. That letter was pinned up on the wall. And it stayed there for a long time. But what did it do? Right. Well, okay. They told us to desist, stop using that silhouette. We don't. Well, let's change our silhouette. We've changed our name. Let's change our silhouette. And we came up then with what we see today for Reebok, which is the vector. And that was a better sign. It looked better. It made us different. So again, a bit more luck pushed us into it. But we find something different. And okay, so now we're... We're doing quite nicely. Moving along nicely. We had a lot of upsets and spills, and you read those in the book, trying to get somewhere. But you know, the United Kingdom's small. You know, we have about 70 million people, just less than 70, and not the disposable income of America. And so the people didn't buy running shoes that much. So it was a nice business, and we could make a nice living. And we also did rugby, which is another... Uh, sort of north of England uh, sport. But I, I knew that America was uh, was big when it came to athletics. All the colleges, all the universities, they had coach. And coach was a god. And you could get a scholarship to a university, a sports scholarship, an athletic scholarship. You didn't need to be sort of doing all the uh, the things that normally you would go to university to do and learn how to be an accountant or maybe uh, a, a lawyer. You know, that wasn't it. Yeah, you could go for anything. I knew the uh, one of the coaches, I had coaches at Yale University, Frank Ryan. He'd done some work with Foster's. Uh, but when Foster's just went down, I spent some time with him. We discussed, but I think he was a bit bit older than he didn't want to start again because he'd started with Sanderson and Foster's. But he would tell me about the, the market in America. At Yale University, they used to take Foster's in and then they would sell them around to different universities. So I thought, that's got to be my market. i got to get in there. So in 1968, I'm reading a magazine. And it's a sports magazine about the business, about the industry. And there's an advertisement in this magazine from the British government. And the British government would like us to start exporting our products. They want to help us. They want to help us. And what they're willing to do is to pay for a stand at the NSGA show, which is National Sporting Goods Association of America, in Chicago. They would pay for the stand. They would pay for our airfare, a return airfare. And they would pay 50% of our costs whilst with the meals and whatever. So I thought, that's pretty good. <laughs> I thought, that's, that's almost better than staying at home. Yeah, and we get to see America. We get to... And, I had a friend, a friend who had an outdoor sports business, and he decided he would come with me. So we, we took a, a ticket, which was, we saved the government money. If we had just had a, a one-leg ticket in and out, it would have cost quite a bit. But we took one of these 14-day tickets, which, you know, if you go in and out, you can get a better, you get a deal. I don't know why we did that, but maybe <laughs> because we got 14 days in America. <laughs> but, but I think we got it's this seven days in America and seven days in Bermuda because we decided that that would be a nice side, side trip on the way back. <laughs> and uh, so we arrived in, in New York, and Bob went to have a look at the outdoor stores. I went to look at the sports stores just to see what's going on. Then we went on to Chicago. And, oh, boy, is it cold in February. February, the first week of February. Oh, it's freezing. I hadn't known that anything that cold. But 
it was gone. However, I didn't sell any shoes. Bob managed to sell a few of his climbing boots, but we were making the climbing boots for him. And, you know, a lot of Americans would come up and say, oh, love your product, great product. Where, where do I get this from? And I said, oh, England. Here's my business card. England. Oh, is that near London? Yes. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> yes. Um, do you not have them over here? Then, no, we'd have to sell them. Nobody wanted to buy them from abroad. It's too much trouble. Mm-hmm. How do you do that? And indeed, I can agree with them. It's, it's quite a pain. <laughs> so this is 1968. And by the time I actually got distribution in America, it was 1979. 11 years of me going to every NSGA show. Uh, there were three in Chicago, then one in uh, Houston. And that happened three in Chicago, one in Houston. So I went to Houston a few times. The biggest problem is, is how do you get in? And I had at least six failed, at least six failed attempts with different people. One was an ex-Adidas distributor. That didn't work. Another one was a couple of Brits who had emigrated, one into California, another one who was in, um, he was in New England somewhere. But we just couldn't make it work. But what was happening? Late 60s and all the way through 70s, running became something really massive, big, so big. And we were in that. That was it. We were in the running business. So surely we can, we can get in there. By 1975, Runner's World, that's the magazine, started in the 60s as a small A4 piece of paper. By 1975, it was a full, glossy, colored magazine. Anybody who was running read it. It was the Bible. And Bob Anderson, he was the publisher. He decided his magazine was so good that he could tell everybody which was the number one shoe to buy. And he did. And I, and I think that was something like Nike's tailwind because Nike was just down the road and Nike were growing massively because of running was growing, Nike were growing. And he put this Nike shoe as the number one shoe. Now, you know, 350 million Americans, 10%, 35 million were probably out there running. Maybe 10% of them, 3.5 million, wanted the number one shoe. How do you get that? You don't. Phil Knight was importing from Japan. And so how does he get Japan to up the up their production? No, just couldn't happen. Bob Anderson did that twice, named a number one shoe. After that, I think, I think the, the whole industry was sort of saying, no, because the, the retailers, they, everybody's coming and looking for the shoe and it wasn't available. And by the time they got the production in, Bob Anderson had given them another shoe. <laughs> so the trade couldn't stand that. So in his wisdom, Bob decided to have... Uh, a star rating. So instead of having a number one, number two, we'll have five stars. If your shoe is five stars, and there could be three or four five-star shoes, then you've got a choice of three or four shoes instead of just this one. I knew we could make a five-star shoe. I knew we could make a five-star shoe. And we did. We made Aztec. And 1979, I'm over at uh, the NSGA again, and uh, came out. They wanted, they wanted into the shoe market, this running shoe market, and they wanted to buy 25,000 pairs off me. Well, that was about six months' work. Six months' work for my factory. But, you know, we knew that. We, we knew if we got a five-star shoe and we got into the American market, we need help. So I had a friend at Barter. Barter would help us, right. It didn't work out very well. <laughs> we talked about that this morning. It didn't work out very well. But uh, it gave us a start. But also, Kmart wanted, wanted a better price, a better price than we could make or Barter could make. And we knew the, the footwear business was going to the Far East. So we had to go to contact there. 
So we knew this is where we would have to go. Did I go with Kmart? No. The main reason I didn't go with Kmart and 25,000 birds is that I thought that could be the first and last order. You know, if we, if we were not selling enough in the square footage they gave to the Reebok brand, that, that would be it. But also uh, at that exhibition, Paul Feynman came along. And Paul Feynman was, uh, was running Boston Camping. It was a small wholesale camping business, selling tents, fishing rods, all whatever. I liked him right from the beginning. We got on very well. But I could see he had a problem. For 10 years, he'd been running this company. And it just, like going around the goldfish bowl, it was just the same thing they were doing. There didn't seem to be anywhere where they could expand the business. And so I could see he was, he was looking for something. And he said, Joe, I'd love, love to be your distributor, but we need a five-star shoot. I said, Paul, look, this is it, Aztec. This is the five-star shoot. He said, yeah, 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 but, you know, it's not there yet. You know, it doesn't come out till August, the, uh, the shoe edition. I said, it will be a five-star shoot. And we sort of said, well, you get a five-star shoe, Joe, and I'm in. Okay, Paul, that's the deal. And they we're talking about February up to August. And so I, I went over to America again and went to see Kmart. And yes, uh, I, the man I'd seen was sitting amongst another 200 buyers in a big sort of building. And I'm thinking, I need emotion. <laughs> this this is not going to give me the emotion, the, the, the drive. So I went along to see Paul and Boston Camping, met his brother and his brother-in-law. And yes, nice little business. And his head sales, uh, Jim Bartley. Yeah, this is great. This would be a nice, nice operation to bolt on our, uh, our Reebok shoes. So we come along and it's the last week in July. And I know that the Runner's World magazine is out there. And I asked Paul. Paul got him on the telephone. It was a bit early in the morning for him, I think. <laughs> I seemed to get him up. I said, Paul, can you go down to the local kiosk? Go on, get the runner's world. It's going to be out. The August issue, the shoe issue. One hour later, he came back. I said, Joe, Aztec, five stars. Wow. He said, but not only that. Inca, which was a spike we'd made in, uh, as well, and uh, Midas, which was a racing shoe, they also got five stars. So we had three five-star shoes. And that was our way in. We, that was the hook. That was the hook that got us into America. Wow. So you not only made one five-star shoe, you made three five-star shoes. Right. <laughs> Incredible. Joe, I am loving this. You found your ideal client. Mm. And you oh, found oh. the best way to market to them. Yeah. Wow. Wow. But what I love most I will say to you is that 11 years of persistence that you kept going and you never stopped on trying to figure out that distribution. Yeah. 11 years. 11 wow. years. It was, it was just keep going. In fact, we have, we have a campaign now in the UK, which we just started since COVID has been around. We're pushing that just keep going. It's so important. And yes, we, we just kept going, but you know, one big, Disappointment was Jeff died. Just as we got our five-star shoes, Jeff died of, of uh, stomach cancer, which was a great tragedy. It was a, an incredible tragedy, but it probably spurred me on because I said, oh, we're going to make this work. This is going to happen. And it did. But that was very sad. However, you know, we, we, we move on and uh, Paul is ready to become my distributor. Right. Fantastic. And so the next thing I do, I go across to America after we've made all our arrangements and Paul picks me up at the airport and we go down to his office and I'm saying well 
you know, where's Steve? You know, where's the rest of the guys? Oh, Boston Camping's no more. <laughs> We're finishing with Boston Camping. I'm now Reebok distributor. His brother had gone to make uh, wallets. He set up a company to make some wallets. And, and his, his, uh, his brother-in-law, he had a second-hand car lot. So from what I thought we were just going to bolt on, no, they'd split it up. Paul was, uh, would take on this massive job on his own. And but Paul was incredible. He really was. Because we didn't have much money. And he needed money. So we eventually got funding. And it was funny, really, because we, we asked a, a number of people. I'm with Paul on a number of occasions, and, and we, we went to New York. We went to the Empire State Building to see, see a guy there who, uh, he, he sourced products out of the Far East. And uh, he'd been asked by Nike for funding, and he turned them down. And he turned us down as well. And, and his story was he turned us down because he didn't want to be seen to be the person that financed the failure. <laughs> because we were just starting, so we, he didn't come with us. But uh, Stephen Rubin, he was a similar sort of person. He, he was in the UK. He was sourcing out of the Far East. And Stephen even didn't believe that much in Reebok. But what Stephen believed is that this was a route into America for his sourcing company, and that if Paul would send his uh, salespeople into Sears and all the big department stores, yeah, Stephen would uh, get his business and you know, that would be good for Stephen. But Paul said, no, <laughs> no, I'm Reebok. That's it. And, and of course, Reebok just, uh, just grew and grew. But you know, the big thing that happened for Reebok was uh, aerobics. Yes, I was going to say the aerobic shoe and Jane Fonda and all this. I mean, you picked mm. such a niche. Oh, my God. Tell me about that. That's amazing. Well, this, it is amazing. It's fantastic because... Uh, uh, Paul had taken on uh, a guy down in uh, Los Angeles called Arhil Martinez. Arhil Martinez was a possible Olympic runner. He was very sporty, very much into it. Had opened his own sports shop, but found that being in a sports shop you know, wasn't that interesting, really, because the reps were coming in and taking him for a meal. You know, and he was thinking, why don't I become a rep? Because, you know, they, they seem to be having all the fun. <laughs> and, and so he signed up with Paul as a tech rep. He just went into the stores. He wasn't selling, but he was telling everybody how good the shoes were. It is, you know, all the good points about the shoes. And he was living in LA with his wife Frankie. And Frankie is coming home with some friends after doing, after going to aerobic classes. And they're full of it. They're really enjoying it. And Arnold says, "What's going on here?" Uh, well, we're doing these aerobic classes. And he said, "What's that? What's an aerobic class?" Well, it's exercise to music, and it's really good. You know, we exercise to today's music, not just, you know, not just sort of like strict dancing or whatever. No, it is great, fantastic. He said, I'm coming down to, to your next, uh, the next time you go to a class, I'm coming. Yeah, yeah, come on. He went to the class and what did he see? He saw the instructor in trainers, sneakers, and he saw half the class in trainers or sneakers and the rest, no shoes at all. But him, that was quite a light bulb moment. That was, wow. You know, I mean, he thought, why don't we make these girls a shoe just for them, yeah, specifically for aerobics and specifically for women, right? Off he went, up to Boston, seeing <laughs> Paul. <laughs> and he said to Paul, Paul, this is something fantastic going on in L.A. These girls, we need to make a shoe for them. And Paul said, whoa, whoa, hold on, hold on. We're a running shoe company and we're doing very nicely. Yeah, but this this is something great, Paul. This is this is going to be really good. 
no, look, Paul, look, Santa, I don't know. You know, just wait. You know, if it, if it starts, does something, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll probably get in there and do something. Arnold wasn't put off. Arnold actually went to the back door and he, he gets to see uh, Steve Liggett. Steve Liggett's in charge of production. Steve, make me some shoes. Make them with glove leather, nice cushioned, just with Reebok on side and the flag and make one a, a, a woman's last. He got his shoes. Steve made his 200 pairs and Arnold started to give them to uh, all the instructors and some of the girls as well. That was it. They loved them. We had a problem again because it's made of glove leather. And glove leather is like making it out of tissue paper. You can just rip it. Mm. Oh. And I didn't know at the time that they were making this shoe. This was done without, without any words to me at all. <laughs> and so what's happening? What are we doing? I, oh, we'll, have to, we'll have to support it with nylon. So they line it with nylon. And then I say, look, leather breathes. Nylon doesn't breathe. Yeah, that's not going to be good. So what do we do next? We punch some holes in the front so that the air can get in and out. So this is designing a shoe. This is wonderful stuff. And some of those shoes did fall apart really badly. Well, you know, had that been in many countries, in particular in the UK, in England, I think that would have been, that would have killed us. Could we survive such a thing happening? Shoes falling apart. But this is America. This is California. This is Los Angeles. The girls loved the shoes. And they went out and bought another pair. That was it. We soon got the, uh, the leather right. Once we got the leather right, yes, it just exploded. Then, of course, you, like you say, we've got Jane Fonda doing her workouts in Reeboks. And she'd actually bought the pair of Reeboks. You know, she, she bought them because they were all over. And, you know, at that point, we just about got to a $9 million company. 12 months later... We were a $30 million company, then a $90 million company, then $300 million, then $900 million. So in four, just all four years, we were nearly at a billion. Now, your biggest problem there is not even financing at that point because things are rolling that fast that the money's coming in and you can fund it. But how do you get from 300 to 900 million with product? How do you get the product? That was another piece of luck. Nike, at that time, Nike had been doing so well, and Nike hit this wall. And oh, all of a sudden, they had to pull out of about four factories in, in South Korea. And just when we needed it, so we moved in, and we got our production. By the time we got to four, just under four billion, and I'd put on another 30 countries around the world, I'd put on distribution for another 30 countries. And I'm, I'm at 35,000 feet for... Probably every month, probably about three or four journeys. I was going around the world at least three times a year. And I'm arriving and being picked up by a limousine. I'm going to the best hotels, eating at the best restaurants. You know, and then and what, we, what we did do, we did the uh, Princess Grace Pro Celebrity Tennis Tournament, which was uh, for her memory, for her charitable, well, there was a charity at that point. And of course... We get all the stars of uh, tennis stars coming in to, to Monaco and Monte Carlo. And, and we also got all the Hollywood stars, you know, with Frank Sinatra. We, we've got uh, Sean Connery, Charlton Heston, it's endless, Jane Seymour. All these people were coming in. So you're living a somewhat artificial life. It's like you know, you're with the A-listers. 
And I remember John Forsyth, who, who you'll remember, he was fantastic. I'd only met him once before. And we, we met again at a, a very big dinner in, in Monte Carlo. And he came along and he said, hi, Joe, how are you? I'm dumbstruck. I'm looking and saying, John, you know, you're famous. I know you and you know, I can remember it. But how do you remember my name? <laughs> wow. And he said, Joe, that's my job. Fantastic. But the, they were all very nice people. Fantastic people. But I, I think for me, the, uh, the buzz had gone, that challenge had gone, you know, with, with loads of accountants and with loads of lawyers and a lot of people in between making shoes and packaging shoes and, and selling them. So uh, just short of uh, four billion, we, we had then become number one. We'd overtaken Adidas. We'd overtaken Nike. We're the number one. And I'm thinking, well, yeah, the challenge is over. It's time now to uh, retire. And I did retire. <laughs> but when I, when I say I retire, I, the phone was ringing a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I know a lot of things that, uh, that I went up. So for me, it's like a bit like the, uh, uh, the Eagles and the song Hotel California. You can check out, but you can never leave. Mm-hmm. Wow. What an incredible story, Joe. Wow. Wow. It overtaken Nike, Adidas, everybody, everybody, four billion. Wow. Wow. Internationally. Oh my goodness. And I have to ask you, what were some of your biggest lessons that you learned along the way? I'm sure there was quite a few of them, but the ones that are most memorable to you, or even just one. Well, there were a lot of lessons and you know, I, I think the most important one is to find the people you can work with and to empower them, to let them feel part of your business. They have to have ownership as well. They have to share that excitement, you know, build the right culture, build a winning culture, and let everybody subscribe to it. Let them all come in on it and get that eagerness so that people are, are not just saying, oh, I've got to go to work. Oh, you'll have bad days. Of course you'll have bad days. But, you know, it's, uh, if you get up in the morning and say it's going to be bad, it'll be bad. But if you get up in the morning and say, no, I'm glad to get there. You know, people turn up in the morning Six o'clock, seven o'clock. They they want it. They're so eager to. What's the next? What's happening next? So I think that the most important thing I think is to build the team. You know, have the team that, re- that really, really enjoy it. And really, there are many lessons. But people, people are the main. The main thing is to get the right people. It's no use having talent if they've not got passion. You you need the passion um, because that that's what other people feel is uh, infectious. You know, you you infect people with your passion. This is it. Yes, we're going to be a winner. And, and if you think that, then that's the biggest lesson for me. The biggest lesson was to get the passion, get the people, and you will grow. Yes, I love that. Further, faster when you have the right team with you, right? Because without Paul in the U.S., you wouldn't have gotten to the U.S. distribution. Then, of course, building more team to stretch out. So, of course, it, the team took you there, which is which is incredible. And I have to ask you, Joe, what what's one of your biggest mantras, like your biggest like sayings that you're like, you stick by it. I guess the thing is that uh, the race isn't over until you've won. Amen. And you sure won that one, four billion <laughs> over everybody else. Oh my goodness. And then this is one of my favorite questions ever, because this can be business or personal or anything, but what would your older self tell your younger self based on what you know now? The old thing is with, with life, we're sort of sitting across the table here. We're having conversations. I didn't have that. We didn't have mobile phones. 
I had a, a handful of American Express travelers checks and, and jumping on a plane. And I had to go places to meet people. What can I say now that uh, technology, I would tell him to get into technology, really know your technology, where it's going, what it can do, and try and develop that technology with whatever your business is, whether it's making running shoes or whether it's technology itself. So, uh, you know, I, I think I, I would say to him, the technology is growing and it's going to keep on growing and it's going to go faster and faster. So, you know, that is it. And uh, you know, something, remembering your grandfather and how much influencing he did. So technology influencing, those are the things to, uh, to sort of pass on because you won't get the opportunity I got. <laughs> my, my opportunity is different back there in the 1950s and 1960s. So, yeah, you've got to look, what is today? Well, today is technology. Yes, absolutely. And what would be your biggest piece of advice to anybody listening? If you have an idea, just go ahead, get on with it. Yeah, don't ask too many questions because nobody there knows, your, knows the answer. There's only time will find you the answer and you've got to experience it. And if you think you fail, no, that's a lesson. That's just something to, yep, wow, learned that one. Bit tough, but on we go. And uh, they're super lessons. Failures are super lessons. They really are. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, you know, you do a plan. And I've done so many business plans. And you look at that business plan. It's, maybe it's a five-year business plan. Whatever. You look at it after six months and you say, how did I put that out? Why, why did I believe in that? Yeah, yeah. We're totally, we know we're near that. We, you know, plan is good because it gives you something to aim for. But quite often, more often than not, you find that circumstances take you in different ways. And uh, so do a plan, but don't, don't have to make it work. Just, just use it as a reference and say, well, hmm, yeah, my, my thinking was we were going to do that. And now we're here. We're either bigger or we're not as big or in a different direction. So, yeah, just whatever your thought is, if it's good enough, if you can believe in it, carry it out, make it happen. It's so important to follow your dream when you're young. Yes, and just keep going, right? Just, just keep, keep going. going. I yes. love that, Joe. Oh, my God. It has been such an honor to have you here today. I can't even express my gratitude hearing the story. I'm so inspired. I'm ready to go kick off and, and just scale <laughs> companies and go do, do something crazy. No, but it was seriously, Joe, you are such an inspiration. You are incredible. Your energy is infectious. And it's no surprise to me that Reebok blew up the way it did because of your hard work, your dedication and your perseverance more than more than anything. And I would love if you could let everyone know how to reach you, how we can find your amazing book, Shoemaker, all of that. That would be lovely. We're on all social media and uh, the book is on sale through Amazon. I, I would hope Barnes and Noble as well have it. <laughs> I, I've yet to come across to America since we actually launched, uh, which we will do. But COVID has been a little bit uh, of a problem as far as that is concerned. And we will be coming across. I will be talking to a lot of people. And uh, yes, so the book is available. It's out there, and it's, it's in audio as well. You get audio, you can get Kindle, as, as well as uh, the book itself. And uh, yes, we'll be signing some books when we, when we come in, don't worry. 
happy to speak to people because uh, you know that's that's what life is about. I hope people can sort of look at what I did and you know say, okay, that's been an experience, and it has been been a great experience and and fun. That's incredible, Joe. It, it's the underdog story, though. If you really think about it, you came yeah. from the bottom yeah. of an international multi-billion-dollar brand, which is absolutely incredible. And you're so humble about it. It's so it's so remarkable. And everyone needs to read Joe's book, Shoemaker. It is absolutely phenomenal. It's Barnes and Noble, Amazon Shoemaker by Joe Foster. The only dream that I've been chasing is my own. So that's it for today's episode of Underdog. Head on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show. One lucky listener every single week that posts a review on iTunes will win a chance in the grand prize drawing to win a private VIP day with Pamela herself in Boston, Massachusetts. Be sure to go to theunderdogshow.com and pick up a copy of Pamela's free gift. And join us on the next episode. Oh,